This is Experimental Sermons for the Second Sunday of Advent, Year B. My texts for today are Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, and Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The title of today's sermon is called No More Recovating. No more recovating. Recovating is a term that was used in the 60s and 70s to describe the vandalism uh, done to Catholic and Episcopal churches when the liturgical movement went through and whitewashed beautiful murals and smashed marble reredoses and uh, ripped altars out of walls and turned them around. And so the picture for today's sermon shows a historic view of the St. Terribius Chapel at the Pontifical College in Worthington, Ohio. Uh, it shows the, the, the view before, before and after Recovation, and the uh, after view is quite stark. Uh, this is a level of damage I don't think even the Protestant Reformation would have thought to visit on a, on a, on a, on a church like this. The effect, the church, I should say, the church has made a good deal of changes like this in the last 50 years, and I often wonder to what effect. For instance, how many churches did, just as we've been discussing, redecorated their sanctuaries, removed elaborate stone reredoses, pulled the altar out, all so that it could, quote-unquote, face the people. Quite a few churches made these changes. The living memory of when these changes were made is starting to fade, and most people walking into a recovated or remodeled church might not even think about it, except when, when, when you come across an old photograph, as I did when preparing this sermon. Likewise with the Book of Common Prayer, we... We moved from the 1928 to the 1979, from morning prayer most Sundays to Holy Communion. Some churches use Rite 2 for most of the year, but switch to Rite 1 during Advent and Lent. But again, I ask, to what effect? In speaking with parishioners over the years, not one has told me about the great day in the life of the parish when we moved the altar or when we switched to the 79. Instead, they are more likely to tell me how much they enjoy coffee hour or how their children served as acolytes. In other words, they seem indifferent to the big changes often foisted on them by clergy wanting to make their mark. Today's gospel reading from Mark is about making a change with lasting effect. Mark chapter 1 verse 4 reads, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is the foundational act in the life of a Christian. It is the first change that needs to be made, and if done with a sincere heart, will set up a cascading effect of change in the lives of believers and appear in the histories of the churches they attend. In light of something as weighty as repentance of one's sins, I am hard-pressed to see how moving the altar or changing the prayer book compares. I suspect, however, that it is easier to rearrange the church furnishings and to upend the time-worn rituals of worship than it is to admit that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness or that we as a church, have taken a wrong turn. Sincere repentance requires honesty. Superficial changes do not force us to be honest with with ourselves and each other. I have to admit that I am somewhat of a student of the changes made in the church these past few decades. I've studied their causes and observed their effects. Mostly, I've been critical of them. I've even pledged to try to undo the worst of them. Repentance certainly means to recognize that one has made a wrong turn, to stop heading in the wrong direction, and to start back on to the fork in the road where things went wrong. C.S. Lewis wrote, We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Well, in that case, count me a progressive. However, our repentance is often short-lived. 
That's one reason why our prayer book has us confessing every week or twice a day if you pray the daily office. It's short-lived because we don't see the results we want to see. That's one reason repentance has to be sincere and not superficial. Superficial repentance gives up when it doesn't get quick results. Put a day or two of a day or two's worth of back-breaking effort in and you can turn that stone altar around. Take an afternoon and you can swap out one set of prayer books or hymnals for another. But I think every church that's done that, and it's most of them by now, never saw the results they wanted. Has anyone actually joined the church because the altar faces a particular direction? I know people have certainly left. If we thought all the outward changes to the church made in the past 50 years were going to revitalize it and grow it, then I think the joke is on us. If we get discouraged when we make superficial changes to the church, how much more discouraged do we get when God asks us to make the deep, heart-rending changes? Yet we shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be discouraged because John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the one change that actually gets results, and moreover, its success is not dependent on us. The baptism of repentance is the work of God. Mark's gospel and Isaiah's prophecy are charged with excitement that God is on the move. From Isaiah we read, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Which Mark then picks up in today's gospel. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Not only is God on the move, but so are his people. They are done making superficial changes to their lives and their churches, and are finally about the serious business of confessing their sins. And if that is not enough, John the Baptist tantalizes them, exciting their anticipation, saying that, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." Here finally is good news. Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Here at last is that day. It's arrived. Not when we finally get up and decide to do something superficial in our lives or to our church buildings, but when God comes down and rips that old heart of stone from the tomb that was our dead flesh and baptizes us, breathing his own spirit into new hearts. Hearts that yearn only for him, just as they beat only because of him. Once God makes this change to our hearts, we go back to waiting. Peter continues, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Part of the mystery of the time that we are living in, the time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, is that some of us get this heart transplant before others. The timing of conversion, of repentance and baptism, is a matter between each individual soul and God. It's not for the church to rush it. It's not for a preacher to force it. God is not late or early. God is always on time. After all, he created time. What we are called to do during this waiting period is to, as Peter tells us, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The call to holiness is ever-present in the life of a Christian. And with holiness comes the promise of peace. Are you not at peace? Examine your life. What sins have you committed that have 
that you have not confessed? What dark alley have you turned down and now find yourself in the company of rats and stepping in filth? Turn around. That light you see from the far-off street lamp is the gospel. It's the light of the gospel calling, calling you back to Jesus. Holiness, without spot or blemish, this is how you need to be found when Christ comes. Read and reread the Ten Commandments. The prayer book conveniently prints them before the communion service. Do you take the Lord's name in vain? Do you curse? Do you miss church? Do you worship anything or anyone other than God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you steal? Do you have sex outside of marriage? Have you neglected your family? Have you murdered, including the unborn, as well as those whom you murder with the hate that you have in your heart? Have you wanted what is not yours because God has not pleased it to give it to you? If yes, then turn around. Be holy. Be without spot or blemish. Use this season of Advent, a season that lasts the whole span of your natural life, or at least until Jesus returns. Use it well. Use it as the Lord intends it to be used, that all should be brought, that all should reach repentance. Use it before he comes again like a thief to rob you of all to which you cling and that does not belong in because it can never be a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. John announces this second Sunday of Advent that now is the time to wash our robes and to let God's Spirit make the changes that need to be made in our lives and to our churches. Amen. Questions for reflection and discussion. Question number one, what is the problem with making big, if only superficial, changes to the church? And the answer is they leave no lasting change in people's lives. Question number two, repentance is the blank act in the life of a Christian. And the answer is foundational. Repentance is the foundational act in the life of a Christian. Question number three, explain why it is easier to make superficial changes than to admit you are a sinner. And the answer is that superficial changes do not force us to be honest with ourselves and with each other. Question number four. Repentance is the hallmark of a true blank. A true what? Repentance is the hallmark of a true progressive. Progressive is the answer. Question number five. Explain the difference between sincere and superficial repentance. And the answer is superficial repentance gives up when it doesn't get quick results. Question number six. God asks us to make what kind of changes? What, what kind of changes does God ma- may ask us to make? And the answer is deep, heart-rending changes. Question number seven. John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins gets results because it is blank. It's blank is not dependent on us. What about John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is not dependent on us? And the answer here is success. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is successful because, not because of anything we do. It's all on God. Question number eight. God's people show that they are on the move when they get serious about confessing their blank, when they get serious about confessing their sins. 
That is the answer to number eight. Question number nine, explain what happens when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the answer is God gives us a new heart that yearns and beats for him. Question number 10, after we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, we go back to what? We go back to blank. The answer is we go back to waiting. Question number 11, what are we to do during this time of waiting? And the answer is we are to grow in holiness. Last question, question number 12, what can you do if you are not at peace? And the answer is you can examine your life by asking what sins have I committed that I have not confessed? Parents and grandparents, you are responsible to apply God's word to your children's lives. So here is some help. Young children, you could draw a picture about something you heard during this sermon, and then you could explain your picture to your parents. Older children, do one or more of the following. Count how many times the word repent or repentance is mentioned. Two, discuss with your parents why it can be hard to own up to something you should not have done. That is the sermon for the second Sunday of Advent, and I pray God's blessing on all of you who listen or read. May God richly bless you and, and, and draw you closer to him and give you the new heart, the heart that yearns for him and beats because of him. Amen.